we've saved our most important question for last here. What we'd love to know and our listeners would love to know is how many takes did you have to do for that oh so moist interrogation scene? Oh my gosh, so many <laughs> takes and just like so much laughing. Like I had to be so far off the set because I just could not keep it together. It is just that was such an amazing scene and it was so magical and it took forever to shoot because of that. <laughs> Welcome to another installment of Studio Sessions with the Madams. Our guest today is a critically acclaimed director of hit shows such as The Mentalist, Supernatural, and A Million Little Things. But Marvel fans will know her for her outstanding work on some of our favorite episodes of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Welcome to the show and thank you so much for being here, Ms. Nina lopez Corrado. Hi, thank you for having me. Absolutely. So first off, how is life treating you these days? It's a strange world out there right now, isn't it? <laughs> uh, life has been treating me really well. It's it's really horrible what's going on. I think one of the... I try to look for something positive in everything. I think the positive things that came out of COVID was um, it made us all slow down for a second. Um, I know me personally, I have been working nonstop for a decade. And to be able to reconnect with my husband and my family and just kind of be still for a moment. It was really refreshing from a personal point of view, from a creative point of view. I think it, so it, the quarantine for me hasn't been horrible. I've been kind of enjoying being home, but as you can imagine, shows are starting to gear up again. So I'd say for the past month, it's been a lot of planning and a lot of reinventing the filmmaking wheel. And and that's been a challenge because We've been shooting film and television the same way for a hundred years. So trying to wrap our heads around it looking different has been quite the challenge. Right. And, you know, it's great to hear someone speaking so positively about the quarantine because there's been so much negativity associated with it, but I agree with you a hundred percent on that feeling. Yeah. It just was, I don't know. It was waking up every morning and, and not having to be somewhere and just like enjoying my coffee with my husband. It just was really lovely. And so I think I'm going to be, I'm like a little bit sad. My quarantine comes to an end on, <laughs> on Sunday. And so I'm, I'm like a, mourning it a little bit. I'm like, Oh no, I've got to go back into the real world. I'm scared. <laughs> <laughs> totally get it. Yeah. And it makes us realize all the small things that we've just sort of taken for granted. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting. And kind of off topic, but it's changed my way of thinking. Like I feel like I was working and like when I wasn't working, I was like grocery shopping or, or shopping or buying gifts for somebody or doing something. And now I don't have that, that like consumer urge to go out and get whatever the hot new thing is because I've just been home so much. And so we've enjoyed different things like learning like the rest of the world, learning how to bake a proper loaf of bread or, you know, using my mix master to make a cake from scratch. So I, I think it's changed a lot of people for the better. Absolutely. So you mentioned kind of reinventing the wheel a little bit. Going back to your earlier days, you have a degree in film production from Full Sail University. So you knew early in life that you wanted to be a creator. Uh, 
when you were growing up, what films or shows or actors inspired you to get into the business? You know, it's, it's an interesting thing. I, as a, a child, I really always loved television. So what was different about me in film school was I went to film school wanting to work in TV, whereas every other person that I went to school with wanted to be the next Steven Spielberg and, you know, looked up to movies like E.T. and Jaws. And, and so did I. I loved those films and I thought I thought they were amazing. What I loved about television as a kid was the connection that I got from those characters because we spent so much time with them. You know, in a movie, you get to spend two and a half hours with them and it's always it's such an amazing ride. But I never felt like I got super, super overly emotionally involved with those characters. But when I watch shows as a kid, like 90210 or ER, I'll never ever forget watching the pilot of ER. I was so young, probably shouldn't have even been watching it. And I was watching it with my mom. And when like Carol gets like rushed into the emergency room at the beginning and George Clooney, like, you know, is working on her, like that is like embedded in my brain. And so like it's those things. And I loved watching all of those shows as a kid and, and how I got to grow with those characters and be with those characters that I wanted to be able to tell those long form stories as opposed to a short form story, which is, a movie. So when I went to film school, it was it was funny because TV, it was not the golden age of television in 2005. And I wanted to do it and no one could understand it. I was like, but why would you want to do TV? You know, everybody in, in film looked down at the people in television. And I was just like, I don't know. I just think there's something more there. And so for my television career, my directing career to kind of have taken off during what is the golden age of television has kind of been a dream come true because it's all I ever wanted. And so I have been able to grow with it. And it, it it's interesting because now all those people that I went to film school with, um, they all want to be in TV now. <laughs> right. <laughs> the tables have turned. And it's funny how you mentioned George Clooney and, and in regards to the condescension there, because he was the first big TV star to really make that jump onto the big screen. Yeah, he did. And, and it's so funny because, you know, the joke about Clooney was if you want your pilot to fail, cast Clooney. And, <laughs> yes. and then ER happened. And then now Clooney is who we are. And he's just such a prolific filmmaker. And he just has such a vision. And, you know, and he's someone who I always looked up to. And, and now I love watching his movies that he directs and he acts in. And to be able to do it all, I think it's just is such an accomplishment. But listen, right. I, I loved films too. And, you know, I grew up on uh, John Hughes movies and, and those stories. And so I guess, as you can tell, I really always was attracted to character pieces and, and kind of examining life, real life. And I felt that's something that John did really well. And so I've always been attracted to shows like that, which is interesting because I did not fall into shows like that when I first started directing. I, I, I did a lot of superhero stuff and a lot of action stuff and, and crime procedurals, which in my mind was, I didn't see myself that way. I saw myself, I saw it differently. I thought I would, I would base my career on like serialized dramas. 
but I didn't, I didn't, I didn't go down that path until recently when I started doing a million little things, but I did find doing the superhero shows, you got a good combination of character pieces and you still got to shoot like all these really cool action scenes. Yes, for sure. Definitely in Marvel. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) You have steadily worked your way up the ranks behind the scenes from assisting on independent short films all the way to directing major network TV shows, including Supernatural, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and A Million Little Things. Was directing always your goal or did that desire develop over time? So I started off, I performed a lot as a child. I was, uh, I danced. So I was always on the stage. I was always teaching and choreographing. And so I always knew I wanted to do something that was creative. And I wasn't exactly sure what that was. The interesting thing was my brother was kind of um, a part of the inspiration because as kids, my brother always was running around with a camera and shooting these movies. And so we always shot these like, silly little movies that we would create. And then we, you know, my brother would edit them like from uh, VHS to VHS in our bedroom. So he did all, all of the editing and, and in reality, I think he did most of the directing when we were kids. And then when <laughs> I got into high school, I kind of stopped making those movies with that, with my brother and my sister and they would do them. And I really focused all of my time and efforts in the dance studio and then when I, my brother was looking at schools, um, he's 17 months younger than me. And one of the schools that he looked at was Full Sail. And when I was going to a dance competition nationals in Orlando, Florida, you know, my mom's like, let's go look at this school that your brother's interested in. So my mom and I went on a tour of Full Sail and when we went on the tour, I was like, oh my gosh, this is really amazing. I think I want to do this. And up until then, I never thought that I could have a career in the arts. So I was planning on going to law school. And then I went to Full Sail and I was just like, this is kind of the best of all the worlds. Like all this equipment looks really awesome. And it just looks like, looks like I could have fun going to work every day. So I kind of stole my brother's dream. I I end up applying and going to full sale and it was for the first time in my life, even more so than at the dance studio, I felt like I had met my people. Like I had finally fit in somewhere and it just all came naturally to me. Like it just, I just felt like I understood production so well, even though I didn't understand it at all. And so very early on in my, in my film school career, I started, you know, like producing short films and music videos and, and in producing and and kind of in the way that they had taught us, you know, how to shoot in film school, I would, I wanted, I had to have control. I have a bit of a control issue. And so (laughs) I would be like the production manager and the first AD and, And by doing both of those things, the production manager really in film school was the person that was producing the projects and the first AD, because you didn't have one director for anything. You had like four directors. You had to be the person that was making sure that everybody's, you know, creative thoughts were coming together in one cohesive way. And so you end up kind of like 
directing every you're directing the directors to direct the film. And so that I think is where it kind of blossomed was like, oh, well, how do I become the person that is producing and directing all these short films while I was in film school? We were super fortunate. We had a kid in our class who was independently wealthy and he would like give us like 10 grand to make a movie. And so we, I got to do a lot of learning while I was in film school. And then when I left and I went out to Los Angeles, I moved out to LA with 10, 10, seven of my closest film school buddies, all which were male. And we moved into a house together to try and make it in Hollywood. And I decided very early on, if I became an assistant, then perhaps I can learn more about the art of directing through somebody else. And so that's what I did. I ended up getting hooked up with Chris Long and he kind of took me under his wing and became my mentor. And so for the next eight years, I got to learn the art of directing firsthand and the art of making television from concept all the way to the final mix. And Chris Long and Bruno Heller, our showrunner on The Mentalist, gave me kind of the access and their motto was kind of responsibility is given or is taken, not given. And so I learned everything inside and out of of television and, and The Mentalist end up becoming kind of like my grad school which then started my directing career. Wow. You know, we were go- we were just going to ask about the challenges you faced on the way, but I think it's safe to say living with seven men would be one of them. <laughs> it was that you know that is an interesting period of my life. You know, we were all such good friends and I inherently was kind of like the mama bear, you know, so it was me and all these guys and we were all really trying to figure out what we wanted to do and how we were going to carve our way into the film industry. And so when we first got out there, you know, they were doing a lot of indie stuff and I I had dabbled a little bit in indie. Um, but I got my, my job with Chris very early on. I think we, we pulled into Los Angeles on the 4th of July of 2007. And I started working for Chris in August. So, um, and in between there, I was working on these short films, uh, for a company called freestyle And so I was working full time pretty immediately and they were doing like, you know, camera work on like short films and web series and like trying to get work wherever they could as a PA. So their work was really sporadic. So it was like a combination of like my memory is like them playing beer pong and (laughs) me trying to sleep or like coming home from work and like one of the mattresses would be out by the pool and they were like jumping from like the decking, like the second floor decking to the mattress into the pool. So it was like, there were, there were definitely some challenges. That is for sure. (laughs) Wow. But as for becoming a filmmaker, you know, I got super lucky with Chris. I think the thing that people forget sometimes is, you know, this is a, you know, filmmaking is a trait and, Finding someone who are, who will mentor you, similar to, you know, if you want to become a cobbler or a welder, like you need to find somebody who is an expert in it and hope that they will teach you all the tricks of the trade so that you can become an expert and then share, share those tricks and trades with the next generation. And I've just been super fortunate that in this whole, my whole journey, I have bumped into all the right people that were willing to share their tricks and their trades. And 
helped me grow as a filmmaker. And of course, Chris is like, was the pillar and he was the one who really opened up those doors for me. But along with Chris, there was Bruno Heller and Bob Singer and Phil Segresha and John Showalter and Jaws and Jed Whedon and Marissa Tancherone, Jeff Bell, all these people who, who were a part of my very early days of directing and producing. They empowered me and gave me the tools that I needed in order to succeed. And I think that is, that's the key for any young filmmakers out there is finding someone that's willing to give you access to their brain. And, and so, and, but that's also falls on us too. Like those people who gave me those opportunities, they made a choice to give me those opportunities and, and they saw something. And so I try to, to give back whenever I can and find the next person that I can give those tools to so that they can grow and also become a successful producer or director. That is a great mindset. And that leads us really well into our next question. So in 2012, your short film, Mindfield, won a number of awards at various international film festivals. So clearly everything really came together for you. How did it feel to get such critical acclaim on your directorial debut? You know, it's funny. It was kind of surreal because at the time I really wanted to be directing an episode of television and it just wasn't my time yet. And so Chris, uh, he ended up, he financed uh, Minefield and his, his theory was kind of like, well, if we can't give you an episode to direct here, let's do something else so that we can prove to everyone that you can direct. And I was super grateful because his wife, Erin Donovan, um, she wrote the script and it was a, an amazing script. And I, I felt very close to it. And I think talking about depression and suicide and, and the effects that it has, it, it was something that meant a lot to me. It was something that also meant a lot to, to Grant and his mom suffered from depression. And so when the movie, the movie came together in a really special way, I think that I'll start there with the backstory. You know, Chris said, let's do this. We decided to do it. And then the whole crew of the mentalist really came together in a labor of love and donated their time to making that movie. It was like our first AD and our DP and our camera operators and our grips and our electrics and even the craft service people and our art director was my production designer and our set deck guys like they all were part of my mentalist family and all those people watched me grow up on that show I started on the mentalist when I was 20 and they always were super supportive of me becoming a director and so those two days we took to shoot minefield was really a labor of love on their part and so the movie became something a lot bigger than me it became like a a passion project for our crew. And so when we started getting into film festivals and we started winning awards and stuff, it wasn't about just me. It was about all of us and and how we all came together. And they all did that for me. So Minefield holds a very special place in my heart because I know not a lot of people get that opportunity. And to be able to make your first film with, you know, these Hollywood professionals who've been doing it for, you know, some of them 30 or 40 years and, and to watch them all come together to make my vision come to life was really amazing. And, and I know like when I won at the Madrid film festival, I won um, the best new director award. And that was really, I couldn't believe it. It was, it was something that I had dreamed of 
from being a little girl, like going off to Hollywood and, and making something that was mine. And then never thought that there would ever be a time where I would win an award or someone would acknowledge it. And, and then to have had that happen, it was really life altering. It was really, it was really crazy. And it did give me the confidence to know that maybe I do have something to say to the world and now the world will be able to actually see it. Yeah. And I think that's a great lesson for young girls out there in the industry too, looking to follow a similar path is that you never achieve anything alone. No, never. And, and anybody can literally anybody can do it. If I can do it, I grew up in a, a middle lower class family um, you know, in a mobile home park in Clinton Township, Michigan. And co- going from there to here is two different worlds. It's it, but it goes to prove that if you want something and if you put your mind to it, and if you put in the hard work, and I think that's the part that sometimes, um, young people of today, they miss that little, that little piece. If you put in the work, you can do it. Like you can achieve it. It is possible. I am proof that it is possible. And so, yeah, minefield was the stepping stone to making all my dreams come true. And it, and it was, it was, it's one little step at a time. Um, but then once you get a, you know, a bunch of those little steps, they start turning into leaps. And then before you know it, you're living your dream. Yeah. And, uh, well, you've directed five episodes of Agents of Shield, including yes. the this the latest episode, one of the latest episodes, Alien Comics from the Future. Were you a fan of the show or Marvel uh, in general prior to being invited to direct? I was very familiar with the show. I I had watched it. I didn't watch it religiously before I started directing over there, but I had seen an episode here or there. It's always a little crazy in this business. We never have a ton of time to watch anything other than the stuff we're working right. on. Right. But to me, it was like this untouchable show. Like it was, it was such a big, it still is. It's such a big show. It's just like, it has big stunts, big visual effects. It has big storylines. It, it, it was just like, it was one of those shows that were, was not easy to get. Um, so I never thought I would get one until I got one. And it's a funny thing, the way I got the job, when I first started directing, like after my first two episodes, I was lucky enough to get invited to what I call speed dating with executives. And (laughs) what you would get is there would be like 20 executives from like ABC, and then they would bring in like showrunners of different shows. So at the time, it was like, Jeff Bell was there from Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and the girls, the executives from Marvel were there and um, like Castle and Grey's Anatomy and whatever shows were on air at the time, you'd get, you would get literally five minutes to tell your story to each one of the executives. And then like a bell would go off just like speed dating and then you'd move to the next one. So you really had to like get your story down in like four minutes so that you had at least one minute to answer questions. And so I met um, the Marvel girls and Jeff Bell at that speed dating. And literally, I just had five minutes with each of them, but they both seemed really awesome. Jeff, you know, was super cool. And then like two weeks later, it was booking season. And my then agent gave me a call and they were like, oh, we just got an offer for you to do Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. And I was like, I literally like put the phone down and looked at my husband. and I'm like, 
I just got an Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. And he's like, no way. And I'm like, I swear <laughs> to God. So it completely caught me off guard because I met with so many shows. And again, I just never thought the show that I would get was the big superhero show. Um, but lo and behold, I did. So I started watching it immediately and became a huge fan of the show. And just like, I couldn't believe how lucky I was that I was going to be able to like make something um, so creative. Yeah. And it, it definitely, definitely fulfilled that childhood love of yours for those long form stories with crazy character arcs. Exactly. And, and just like that first script that I got, Craig wrote it. And it was just like so bananas and like the Koenigs were in it. And it was just like, <laughs> it was such a cool thing. But I was super nervous when I when I first got there because I was just like, oh my gosh, this is so big. And they were just the most loving family in the whole entire world. Like every cast member, every crew member, they were just like so accepting and like so wanting to make your vision come to life, which is why I kept on going back because every time I would go there as a guest director, it would just be like, however big you can dream, we will make it happen. And that is not, you don't always get that opportunity when you go to shows. Right. So what were some of the biggest challenges you faced? Well, I think our our biggest challenge when I was doing my first episode was was working with Patton at the time his wife had just passed away and it was, right. a, it was a really challenging time for him. And I think as a, as a, as a show, you know, everybody really wanted to be there for him and support him. Um, but he was also, you know, learning how to raise his young daughter by himself. And so I think the biggest challenge on that episode was, you know, he was playing four different characters and the schedule was quite tight. So figuring out how to tell that story in the most precise way possible so that we can literally get him out so that he can go be a dad. So I think that was our, our biggest challenge. And then like the ultimate challenge, though, was that hoverboard. Oh, my gosh. The hoverboard <laughs> was the bane of all of our existence because um, Patton had... We originally were like, oh, yeah. Patton can get on the get on the hoverboard. We'll just shoot it like you know an actual hoverboard. And then like we were very quickly realized like no that that's not going to happen. And we realized that because I went to go try the hoverboard over in the writers' room, and like I was on it for maybe ten seconds, and like completely fell on my butt. Like like went, went <laughs> and I'm like this is not going to happen. And Patton is like the funniest human in the world. He's not the most physical person. So in, in everything in that episode was just like him running and fighting and hovering and stuff. So I think the biggest challenge on that one was figuring out how can we make this look as real as possible and how can we cheat it? So there's a lot of cheating going on and it ended up coming together really well. So I think we achieved our goal. You certainly did. It looked seamless on screen. Thank you. <laughs> and he was also trying to finish Michelle's book at the time, right? He was. He was finishing the book. And there was actually this really, really sweet moment. His daughter had a dance recital. And he just, he had to go to that dance recital. Like it just, there was under no circumstance that he couldn't miss it because it was the first one after his wife had passed. And so we kind of moved a bunch of things around. And it was the day um, we were shooting, they were doing the passing of the briefcase when they were walking across the street. 
and he had to get out. And I was like, I can shoot this in one shot. If you are just on board with it and we can get you out. And he was totally on board. And it was like, we got him out in time and like everybody cheered and they were super excited. And he got to go to that recital and he got, you know, he sent us pictures of the recital and she was just like, her smile was priceless. And I think that's kind of the beauty of TV. And, and when you get on a crew like shield, because that took, you know, it took the whole crew to get out in time and to work together and work as one cohesive unit so that we can get him to his dad, his daughter's recital. And it worked and everybody was super happy and he was super grateful. And so I always, thought that was a a really nice moment. Yeah, especially in these times, it's lovely to hear those stories of, you know, crews and cast really coming together to support, you know, a castmate. Exactly. Uh, What would you say was your favorite episode to direct and why? I think my favorite episode that I directed was Alien Commies from the Future. It's an, it, that one's interesting because it was my I knew it was going to be my last episode of Shield and I was super emotional about that. Everybody was emotional, you know, the last the last season because it was it was an end and and that that group of people, that crew, you know, when we leave a show, you never it's never the same ever again because you'll never get every single one of those people back on your crew. Um and so when uh, Alan Westbrook and I went into it, um, the cinematographer, you know, I was like, let's just do whatever we want to do. Like, let's just make something that is just a little bit outside of the box. And so my inspiration was the Coen brothers. And I, I just really stuck to kind of thinking outside of the box and not doing traditional coverage and just looking at it from a different, a different lens. And, and Alan was just like so supportive of it and totally on board. And so I think creatively speaking, it was really truly my vision that came to life in that one and, and Alan's too. And even the way like we talked a lot about tone and, and how he was going to light it and how we were going to shoot it. And like the camera operators were like totally on board. And so were the cast and Jed and Marissa and Jeff. So I think that was my favorite one creatively because we just had such a good time and we knew it was the last time that we were going to work together. And the end, I was just so pleased with the final product. Yeah, it was a fantastic episode. Yeah, I think it's it's our favorite episode in the season so far. Thanks. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about creating that rich Uh, detailed 1950s atmosphere specifically like the diner scene was just incredible in terms of those little details the the diner scene was so fun that set we shot that one on location out in in the desert and when we went to look at it it just it it fit perfect for what we needed like very rarely do you walk into a location and it's built the way that you need it to work So that was like the first main thing. And then we were so fortunate that there was a little, you know, season seven, there was a little bit more money in the budget to be able to go out. So getting all of those like vintage cars and all of that stuff that made it feel real, I think is a huge, huge, huge part of what happened and how it came that way. And then Greg, the production designer, his vision was just completely on point with mine and and they did such a great job with set deck 
with Melissa to be able to bring in all of those vintage pieces, which just made it feel so authentic and so real. And then along with the camera and, and working with them to kind of shoot things like a little bit off access and not doing, you know, usually on shield, there's a lot of dirty overs and we shot everything clean in this episode. And, and we did it in a limited amount of time too, because we only had one day out in the desert and we had to shoot a lot of stuff in that one day. So it was just like a really, everyone was really excited and really jazzed that we had like this really awesome fifties period piece. And so it just came together and, and it did all the details just worked really beautifully. But I think in large part, it was because of the art department. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. The art department has been phenomenal this season. They've been fantastic. And I think we need to give a round of applause to Whitney, the production, uh, the costume designer, she just killed it yeah, every time absolutely. they would come out in those new costumes. It would just be like breathtaking and hair and makeup just did so much research and they were also perfectly costumed in hair and makeup for whatever period they've been in so far. I think it was just really a fun change for everybody that was involved. <laughs> Yes, from what we've seen on social media, the costumes have gotten more attention than anything else. It is crazy. And Whitney at the time was super pregnant and she was just killing it. She was just like, must have been so tired. By my episode, she was pretty pretty far along. And she was just like bringing out all these amazing pieces and just like every single thing she showed us was just on point. There was never like, Oh no, we were thinking it was a little bit more like this. It was just exactly what we were thinking. She was just, she did so much research and and just really killed it. Yeah. In this episode, uh, you, along with the writers, Nora and Dilla Zuckerman, uh, handled racism and sexism really well, you know, in a very deft manner. How has your journey as a woman in this industry, you know, helped uh, inform the way you tell stories about women on screen? You know, it's an it's an interesting time we're in right now because I I've, I'm coming up, you know, right when there was a push for female and diversity directors, and so. I have been incredibly fortunate to have worked with a majority of people who support the movement and who want different voices telling their stories. And I do think, you know, everybody directs from a different perspective. It it doesn't matter if you're black, white, blue, purple, male, female, transgender, we all walk down a different path and we all have different experiences. So getting all those different people to tell the stories on a weekly basis, I think really makes our shows more well-rounded. And so I have been fortunate to be on shows that want all those voices. I've also been on a couple of shows that aren't so open to hearing those voices. And so sometimes it, it was very challenging to be a, a young female director. And I, and I think, I think it was a combination for me, it was a combination of being incredibly young and given the opportunity to direct and being a female. And so sometimes you feel like you have to prove yourself twice as hard because, you know, whoever, most of the crew has been doing it a lot longer than you. And so therefore they feel like probably it was handed to me or 
I don't deserve it or I haven't put in enough time until you get in the trenches with them and you prove that you do know what you're doing. And then they usually jump on board. And even in those shows where probably they only hired me because I was a female hire, you know, you have to, you have to learn to put that aside and keep on doing the job and do the job to the best of your ability and prove to them that you can do it. And you get used to that. And I think that's inherently part of the problem is why do we have to get used to proving ourselves to them? Why, why can't we come into the job with the same confidence that they give our counterparts when they show up? They don't think that they're going to do the job bad. But I think that also made me a tougher director, a stronger director, a better director, because you don't have the opportunity to fail. Because if you fail, you're not just failing for you, you're failing for whatever females are or diversity directors that are coming after you. Right. And so it's always been really important to me to give my best work, not just 100%, but 200% so that there is absolutely no question when they're looking at the next season about who they're going to hire, that not only will they bring me back, but they'll be like, oh, well, she was a great director. Let's see what other really great female directors there are out there. And I think that's just a part of how how it goes. You know, we're re we're reinventing what it looks like to be a a filmmaker in Hollywood. And now that when they look through that window, they're not just seeing one thing. Now they're seeing a bunch of things. They're seeing different colors and different, different sexes. And, and so there's a process in that. It doesn't just change overnight. I understand that, but I think what's happening right now is amazing. I think stories are being told differently and across all platforms And that's happening because now we're getting voices from a bunch of different people instead of just one type of person. Absolutely. What do you think would be different for someone like a woman to come in as a director now, as opposed to when you started your journey? How do you think things are different? I think now, and even more so, I think maybe after COVID, now that the showrunners and the people doing the hiring, people like me, the producing directors, I think we're looking at things in a different way. And so I think it's always going to be difficult to become a director. I, I think no matter who you are, male or female, the opportunity is so sought after that it's never going to be an easy task. But is it going to be slightly easier or will it look different for newer, younger female and diverse directors? I think so. I think there, I, I know I for sure look at directors who come onto my show in a different light than what some people looked at me. Um, And I know I have confidence in them and I have a a mission to make them succeed. And so I think if once you are able to figure out how to get the first episode or get the opportunity, I do think on a number of shows, there'll be a higher success rate because we want female and diversities to succeed. It's my goal to make them succeed, to do whatever it takes to make them succeed. And it's not, I don't have that goal just for female and diversity. I have that for every director that walks through my door. My job as a producing director is to support the director and their vision. And I want every episode to be great and I want them to be great. And so I do think it'll be different. I think it'll be, I think it'll be a little bit easier for some of them once they get the opportunity. Do you think as a woman director, as a newcomer would get more opportunities now than before? Well, we're in a really tricky time right now. I would say 
four months ago, yes. Okay. I would say today um, in COVID, no. I think we have a lot of challenges right now that we're going to have to figure out on how to get new talent in the door um, while we don't have a vaccine. Right. The truth is this season is going to be a really difficult time because most shows, we don't know what it's like to shoot in COVID. Um, We know it's going to be more challenging. We know the process is going to take a lot longer. And so what we are looking for on most shows is to bring back returning directors. We're also not going to be able to have shadows this season because the limited number of crew members that are going to be allowed on set. So unfortunately, I think until there's a vaccine, it's, it's not going to be an easy task to get new talent in the door. My hope is, because I, like I said, I always like to look at the positive because there's going to be such a, a lack of content across all platforms. There's going to be a huge push to make content once we come out of this COVID world. And, and when that happens, there's just not going to be enough directors to go around or, or showrunners or writers. So hopefully it will open doors for new talent to, to get in um, because there'll be so much stuff being shot all at one time. Right. Now, you and your husband, Julian Acosta, also have your own production company uh, called Broken Toy Works. Can you tell us a little bit about your vision there? Yeah. So um, it's always been important to myself and Julian to tell stories, um, to tell diverse stories. And so most of the stuff that we create are Latino-based um, my husband's Puerto Rican and uh, one of our projects, which is called uh, Hunters of Men, is based on a true story. My husband's father, Jose Lopez, was the youngest appointed U.S. Marshal in the history of the U.S. Marshal Service. He was the U.S. Marshal for Puerto Rico in the 1970s and 80s. And he spent most of his career um, quite literally hunting men in Central and South America. He was a very big part of the war on drugs in the, in the early 1980s. And one of his big missions was he, he captured, he um, kidnapped and brought back to the U.S. a man named Juan Ramon Mata Ballesteros. And Mata was important because his airline, Setco Airline, was the airline that was running um, the arms for the Reagan administration during the Iran-Contra scandal. Oh, wow. And Mata's Mata's cocaine, in return, was flooding the streets of the U.S. um, legally. And basically, his, his cocaine created the crack epidemic. And because of Jose... Um, bringing him back to the USA, Mata is serving a multiple life sentence at the Supermax in Florence, Colorado. And so, you know, the project that we've been pitching for quite a while is a period piece, but it also shows the dynamics of the war on drugs and the effects it has on the people doing the fighting and the dying on both sides of the line. And I think there's this really interesting thing. Puerto Rico is a, an interesting thing to the United States. It was the very first time we had homegrown assets that can speak the native tongue. So when we sent down people like my father-in-law down to Central and South America, we had never had that before. Um, 
you know, when we were recruiting spies, like in Russia, we were recruiting them. They weren't Americans. They were Russians that were working for Americans. This was uh, a native speaking American sent down to Central and South America who could speak the tongue. So, but also who was kind of, you know, they're the, Puerto Rico's the Ireland of the United States. They're the redheaded stepchild that we want them when we need them, but we don't want them when we don't need them. And so I think it was a, it's an interesting story to be told what it's like to be a Latino in an American world and fighting for the American government when you have stronger ties to what's happening down in Central and South America. So we try to tell stories, diverse stories that maybe haven't been told yet. That's what's important to myself and Julian when, when pitching stories and telling stories. Uh, I can't speak for anyone else, but this sounds really interesting to me. <laughs> yes. And it, that story has not been told before. I'm a huge true crime buff and I've never even heard of it. Yeah, it's it's pretty crazy. There's a lot of a lot of stuff about it on the Internet and law enforcement's an interesting thing because I think people don't truly understand what it does to um, the people who are actually doing the work. It's a it's an interesting thing. And I remember when we were, we did all these interviews with my father-in-law and we got the name of the series because he, he was explaining himself and he just like very nonchalantly was just like, yeah, you know, I, I was a hunter of men and we're like, they really are that that's what they do. They, they go and they find these bad guys in order to protect us. And, and sometimes I don't think we fully understand what kind of impact that has on their lives and, and the way that they live. Right. Can you also tell us a little bit about your nonprofit work that you that you do in Puerto Rico? Yeah, absolutely. So I think when my husband and I, uh, when I first started directing, and he's been acting for quite a long time, um, but when we started making money, we were like, what can we do to give back? And we thought about just donating to other places. But then my husband was in Puerto Rico and he was with his dad. And his grandmother was a teacher her whole life. She taught in Toalta, which is a very, very, very small town in Puerto Rico. And they went to go visit the school that she taught at. And Lorna, who is the principal, she, she said, you know, there were all these very, very, very smart kids and they all wanted to go to college. They just didn't have the resources to do it. Um, and so Julian came home. He's like, I would really love to start this, this, a scholarship foundation. And, and I was like, I think that is a great idea. And, and I was like, I think it should be more than just scholarships. I think we should create a network. And so we created the Puerto Rican education foundation. And what it is, is each year we give kids scholarships to go to college. And we, uh, one of the, stipulations of getting a scholarship is that they enroll in the University of Puerto Rico. You know, when the recession happened in 2008, a lot of Puerto Ricans started leaving Puerto Rico and moving to the mainland, U.S., um, mostly Florida. And what happened is all of the young, bright minds were moving out. And so now there are a lot of elderly there. And so we need to recreate the foundation of Puerto Rico. So by getting the kids to stay at the University of Puerto Rico and become doctors, lawyers, pharmacists, teachers, we're hoping to rebuild the foundation so that Puerto Rico can go back to its glory days. And so we have been doing that for a few years now. And then once the kids get a scholarship, they become a part of the organization and we hold 
events throughout the year. You know, they all have my email address, my phone number, Julian's phone number and email address. And, and so we try to keep them all together so that we, we don't just support them the year that they're senior and going to college so that they have uh, an infrastructure and people that they can turn to anytime they need anything so that, you know, we can help really honestly build this new Puerto Rico. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, that, that is awesome. You're making a real difference down there and they need it. Thanks. They do. They're so, and the kids are just so amazing. And, you know, they make you grateful for everything that you have and you're grateful to have them in your lives because they're just so smart. Now we've saved our most important question for last here. What we'd love to know and our listeners would love to know is how many takes did you have to do for that? Oh, so moist interrogation scene. (laughs) Oh my gosh. So (laughs) takes and just like so much laughing. Like I had to be so far off the set because I just could not keep it together. It is just, that was such an amazing scene and it was so magical and it took forever to shoot because of that. (laughs) (laughs) Were there too many moist tears? Way too many moist years. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I had to stop. I had to stop playback myself while I was watching it. My dogs kind of freaked out like, Mom, are you okay? I'm like, guys, I've just doubled over with laughter. I'm okay. <laughs> My gosh, that is so funny. Yeah, no, it was such a great scene to shoot. And probably, I don't know, probably close to 10 takes, which is a lot for us. We try not to do that many because we don't have that much time. But it was it was great and it cut together so beautifully. Yeah, it certainly yeah, did. It did. <laughs> Could you tell our listeners where they can find you online and on social media? Absolutely. You can find me at ninalopezcarado.com. Um, on Instagram, you can find me at nlopezcarado and the same on Twitter. Okay. And how about your foundation? Oh, my foundation. You can find my foundation at on Facebook if you look up the Puerto Rican Education Foundation, or you can reach us at Puerto Rican Education Foundation.org. Guys, this was so much fun. Yeah, for us too. Absolutely. This was just lovely. Yeah, it was. We've learned so much. Yes, we certainly have. And we're going to link to your foundation on our social media and in the show notes. Oh, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate that. That means a lot to me. Yeah. And whenever you guys get that project rolling and it comes out, uh, Hunter's Men, I will be tuning in. Yeah. Yay. Yeah, me too. Thank you so much. I will be sure to keep you guys posted when that happens. Great. All right, ladies. It was an absolute joy. Sure. Absolutely. Thank you absolutely. so much. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Nina. Have a good day. All right. Bye-bye. So that was our interview with Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. director Nina Lopez-Corrado. If you want to see more of her work, you can catch A Million Little Things on Hulu right now. Thanks to all you madams for joining us today. If you're new to the podcast, we have a whole series on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and new episodes dropping every week through the series finale. I'm Madam Amy. And I'm Madam Chris. Assemble with us Monday for our regularly scheduled programming. In the meantime, visit us at themarvelousmadams.com, where infinity stones are a girl's best friend.